Hi, and welcome to Redefining Outbound, a podcast series for sales leaders. I'm one of your hosts, David Bentham, VP of Global Sales Development at Cognizant. I'll be interviewing a range of forward-thinking sales leaders on how and why B2B buying behavior has changed. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Redefining Outbound. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of being joined by Shruti Kapoor, who is the head of international business at Clary. Um, Shruti, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, why don't you start off by just telling uh, the audience about yourself, your journey um, so far? Awesome. Thanks for having me, David. I, um, of course, like you said, I'm currently the head of international uh, strategy and partnerships at Clary. Um, the way I came into Clary family was actually through an acquisition. Uh, I was the CEO and founder at Wingman, uh, which is now Clary co-pilot in the conversation intelligence space. And uh, Clary acquired us last year. Um, and, uh, you know, it's uh, come a full circle because I started my career in investment banking. And I remember like, you know, some of my early projects were on the uh, M&A side. And uh, it was interesting to be in the middle of an M&A as a founder. Um, and yeah, uh, uh, done a bunch of things uh, for the 15 years that I've been working, uh, starting from investment banking, investing in patents and early stage technology, fintech, and uh, now uh, Clary. Awesome. And and um, so you mentioned your job title is kind of um, a little bit mixed at Clary. What what's your what are your responsibilities there? Yeah. So. Um, a large part of my role at Clary is really helping figure out uh, what our strategy should be uh, in the international markets, which is everything outside of the U.S., uh, right? So like, you know, what are the geographies we should focus on? What type of segments should we focus on? What are the type of partners we should work with, um, right? So that's a large part of what I do today. Uh, of course, uh, you know, I also uh, look after some parts of the wingman business uh, and just kind of maintaining continuity there. Um, yeah. Awesome. Amazing. Um, and the first question that we always ask everybody um, on this is, what does redefining outbound mean to you? <laughs> um, I think, uh, you know, the, the very simple answer in my mind is going from like the 2% response rate to maybe like a 20% response rate. I'll take that as a version of redefining outbound. Uh, and I'm sure a lot will have to go into it. Uh, but I'm pretty sure the answer is also not bombarding people with like hundreds and hundreds of emails every day. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that would be my starting point. Yeah, awesome. And and so you've you're on the receiving end of um, of lots of outbound. I'm very sure, probably from my team um, as well. Um, what do you see as the kind of like uh, biggest challenge? Um, yeah, like that you see from them. Um, what are people doing wrong? And what are people doing um, right? <laughs> um, I think it's uh, it's funny, uh, you know, outbound, and and I think you tend to see these trends even more intensely when you are selling to salespeople or when sales, like when you a sales tech company is selling to you, um, because I think uh, the trends catch up pretty quickly. So I remember a few years back, uh, you know, suddenly there was a trend of people sending an image with like a personalized placard, uh, right? And then there was a trend of people sending memes. And, you know, right now there seems to be a trend of hyper-personalization using chat GPT. Um, but I think uh, the thing that really truly stays is the relevance part of it. And I know it sounds very intuitive and obvious, uh, but, you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, you can grab my attention using a placard or by sending me a 
uh, you know, video. Uh, but if none of that is really truly relevant to me, at the end of the day, I'm going through a recce of my mailbox and I'm just trying to get uh, through the day, right? So I'm just trying to go from the 100 emails to the five emails that I really need to respond to. Um, and I think uh, with ChatGPT, in fact, something funny happened a couple of days back. Somebody sent me a hyper-personalized message saying that, oh, I heard that you had a break-in in your house and I hope everything's okay. And I'm like, you know, this, like nothing like that happened to me. Uh, and then I realized that it was, uh, you know, the bot uh, hyper-personalizing it based on another person's LinkedIn post who happened to be have the same name as me. Um, so yeah, I think uh, we you begin to filter those out. I think people have discovered ways of filtering out like fake personalization with uh, true relevance. That's awesome. So, do you, so just on the back of that, do you think there is a place for chat, like you know, for AI and ChatGPT in 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 uh, the world of I suppose outbound? Absolutely. Um, I think uh, <laughs> um, we would be amiss to say that it's not going to redefine uh, a lot of things uh, that people do in sales today, right? Not just in outbound, um, but uh, I I think. Till we get to a stage where it can fully automate it for us, uh, we should use it as a smart assistant versus as a replacement, All right? And that's kind of where we can get good value uh, without, uh, you know, running into issues like this. Awesome. Totally agree. Um, so you mentioned at the start of this that you were the co-founder of Wingman, which is now called Clary Copilot, if I'm uh, I'm. Um, not mistaken uh i think uh, it'd be remiss of me not to kind of dive into that because i think a big call to action for that from my understanding is around stopping revenue leak one interaction at a time um can you just expand on this a little bit more um and you know like what should companies be um like focusing on in order to, to to stop that revenue leak that you describe yeah, absolutely. So maybe just a quick step back uh, into what Clary Copilot uh, slash Wingman really is, uh, right? So Clary Copilot is a conversation intelligence uh, part of the platform, uh, which is uh, recording and analyzing sales calls, both post facto, so that people could use it for, you know, coaching, uh, sharing notes, doing follow ups, uh, you know, sharing voice of customer across the organization, but also in real time to give instant feedback to salespeople. Um, and then when I think about, you know, what uh, what, what kind of uh, gaps or leaks exist, uh, right? And what is it that people should look for when they are listening to a sales call? Um, I broadly kind of put it into three buckets, right? Like you want to see what is being said, right? Which translates to are my reps following the playbook? You know, if this was the first call and I follow a medic process, then you know, which of those got covered? Um, you know, what, what are some of the biggest gaps we have in our qualification as we bring things into the funnel and then tend to maybe uh, lose or have deals slip, uh, like 50% of the pipeline slip into the next quarter, right? So it is about what is being said by my reps and, uh, you know, how consistent is that? How, uh, how much am I learning and iterating it, uh, right? Um, the second is who is it being said to, right? So you know, of course, the basic stuff like uh, who was invited to the call, who actually joined the call, uh, right? Which of the profiles, like, did uh, the sales rep actually engage with everyone? 
uh, right? If they did a discovery, uh, were they able to actually understand the needs of the different types of stakeholders who are typically decision makers or important uh, in a deal cycle, right? So who is it being said to? Um, and then, of course, thirdly, what are they saying, uh, which is what is the customer saying, right? So what are the common type of objections am I hearing? Um, are there specific product features that are being requested? Uh, is there a new competitor in the market or have they launched uh, something new uh, that I need to be aware of? Um, and I think if we know that and we know that at scale, not you know, just based on a single person's opinion, uh, which often gets biased, right? Like if you go and ask a salesperson, uh, what's up? They are going to tell you, oh, you know, everybody, like everybody's killing uh, me because we don't have this feature and our competitor has this feature. And if you actually go and look at the stats, that might have only come up in like 7% of the calls, but it's just that maybe they were the calls, like it happened in two of the last three calls that uh, he or she had. Um, so yeah, I think that's, kind of where uh, data can really help in uh, gleaning out the right signals so you know what uh, you know gaps or holes you need to plug to stop revenue leak. That's awesome. And I, I think as well, like a big part of it was around um, identifying opportunities at risk. Um, you, um, you know, I think actually currently at ATM, I can't really speak on it because I'm more on the SDL side, but um, our team are kind of looking at just our pipeline reviews and deal inspection and how we're, we're reviewing that. Um, would love, I'm sure the audience would absolutely love to know your general advice on, you know, how to execute on great deal inspection and, and, and generally like, you know, pipeline management. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, uh, if you were to break it into the type of signals that people look at uh, or people tend to miss, right? Um, we often look at uh, the current status of things, all right? Um, so it's very easy to see what is the current status of the deal, what is the current size of the deal, what is the current close date of the deal, right? But what people often miss out on is what is the momentum behind those signals, right? Are these moving in a positive direction? Are these moving in a negative direction, right? Did I have five people who were engaged on this deal uh, you know, 60 days back, but I only have like one person who's engaged on this deal today, right? Was the deal value, you know, a million dollars earlier and it's only 300K today, uh, right? So I think the differential signals can sometimes be uh, very, very telling uh, because <laughs> it's funny, right? Like we don't want to go from a one to a zero, right? It's very hard for a rep to take an opportunity and then say that, um, you know, this opportunity doesn't exist. It's easier for them to slowly contract it out, <laughs> right? And like either reduce the value, push out the close date, uh, right? And then like till people either forget about it or people slowly realize that this is at risk because then you don't get asked the hard questions. Um, so I think it's really useful to look at momentum signals for deals when you're doing the deal inspection. Uh, and if you have a way to do that, um, you know, on how some of these key signals are changing, it's super important. Um, I think the second thing that uh, people often don't realize, and this is a bit of a mixed bag, right? You are in the last two weeks of the quarter, and which is actually literally true for us because our quarter end is end of October. Um, and you begin to suddenly see uh, your pipeline contract, right? Uh, and very often this is slip deals. Uh, close dates getting pushed out to the next quarter, right? Um, maybe it's not a big deal, right? Uh, the way people think about it is, Okay, that means I have more pipeline coverage for the next quarter. But what people don't realize is that your win rate for a slip deal goes down by close to 
right? And this is like a bunch of data analysis that we've done across uh, thousands and thousands of deals. Uh, and that's huge, all right? So if you typically expect to close 20% of your deal, uh, for deals that actually shift uh, and slip to the next quarter, you are likely to close, you know, maybe only 7% of them. And that's just mind-blowing. That's so interesting. That um, uh, and and so obvious, but you're right. Like you know, it's the slipping is probably the first. How, do, do you do you have any metrics? Like how many are slipping that, that you see? Yeah. So and how uh, do you actually, avoid it? I suppose is the would be the the follow up question. Yeah. So we typically see uh, close to forty in some cases, up to even sixty percent of deals slip, right? And very often, if you ask a board member, the deals, uh, what makes them the most nervous is committed deals slipping, uh, right? Or the committed deal pipeline shrinking in the last two, three weeks of the quarter. Um, how do you do that, uh, right? Like I said, why does slippage happen? Um, it's two reasons. Either there is um, you know, a general, genuine timing issue, um, right, which could happen because maybe the business needs changed, the stakeholder changed. Uh, but very often it could also be because you didn't line up all of your buying processes that need to happen at the other end, right? And today we all hear that buying committees and buying teams are larger, uh, right? So when do you start engaging with procurement? Does that happen? Like, you know, once you've done your demo, done your POC, and you feel that you're ready to sign the contract, or do you start engaging with procurement after the first call, uh, right, to understand what their process is going to look like. When do you start engaging with legal? So very often slippage happens just because there are things that go into uh, the paperwork cycle and then, um, you know, it just gets delayed. Uh, but what we don't notice is that people haven't yet signed off. So it's not just about the paperwork. And the reason why this deal chance of closing is lower is because you know, somewhere a CFO is sitting and he or she has no visibility that this is coming through the pipe, right? So how do you create that visibility? How do you get their buy-in and how do you talk their language so that they see the value from their perspective? Um, so that's something that we see. And like one of the tips that I see, um, right, is have a workspace that is shared with your buyers so that when they need to bring in different stakeholders, it is much easier for them. Got it. Makes total sense. And so we've spoken about the end of the opportunity there. Like I'm I'm interested in if you've got if you've got any advice on on, you know, your opportunity review or opportunity inspection at the start of the um like opportunity in those kind of like early stages. Yeah. So I think uh, two things, right? One is when do I actually disqualify a deal? Uh, right? And in, in the early stages, um some people are too lenient, some people are too stringent, and I think both uh, can be dangerous. Um, so one of the things that we noticed at the start of COVID was, um, you know, many times people came and said, oh, we've, you know, the pipeline has suddenly shrunk. We've completely <coughs> lost like maybe 40, 50% because everybody's coming in telling me we have no budget, we have no budget. Um, and when we dug into the real reasons and we looked at the data for six months into the COVID uh, lockdown period, we saw that what had really happened was that these people were facing uncertainty and they just needed more time, right? Um, so would it have been more prudent 
instead of like marking all of those as disqualified or the or lost opportunities, would it have been more prudent um, to have a smarter, uh, more personalized approach to staying in touch uh, <coughs> and enabling them through that phase of uncertainty while still showing them value? So that is one. Um, I think the second piece is uh, in terms of multiple stakeholders. And I know we spoke a little bit about involving procurement and CFO. Um, one thing that I've seen some of my teammates do really, really well is they get on the first call with the POC and then they set up an exec call immediately after that in collaboration with the POC. Um, what happens is that very often people hesitate at that point. They don't want to undermine their point of contact or their champion in the deal. Um, and therefore, they are hesitant to ask them for introductions or bringing in more people into the room. But honestly, the sooner you can do that, uh, right, and the sooner you're able to set up that next exec meeting, it becomes a forcing function, uh, both for your champion uh, to, you know, go and uh, socialize this internally, and two, for you to begin to build a repo, do the discovery across multiple stakeholders, so that from day one, they know that this is coming through the pipe. Uh, and I think it's never too early to involve multiple stakeholders. Um, and I think, uh, you know, another interesting tip there is to actually start to work with the, um, you know, uh, EAs of those execs so that you're able to get that scheduled in, you're able to do like a large meeting with all of your relevant stakeholders, but you're also able to make sure that you're bringing value to each of them. Because if you set that meeting up, maybe even if it's like two, three weeks out, you have that time to go and connect with them one-on-one, -on -one, find out what they would want to see in that meeting. Um, and that gives you a lot of leverage uh, and a lot of important knowledge that can be um, an absolute game changer later stages. Awesome. That's great. Um, you spoke on the sales engagement podcast um, about this idea of reducing the pressure of a sales-based decision. Um, this idea of a long-term value pitch. How can sales leaders coach this for their team um, in your mind? I like to think of it as um, kind of, you know, stacking uh, a set of like nested eggs, right? Um, what you're trying to do is you're trying to just sell the next step very often and not the final step. And through that process, you're trying to test what are they ready to buy at that point, right? And so what I mean is in some cases, um, it might be, um, you know, in the early meeting, you're actually trying to sell that exec meeting, uh, right, that I spoke about. Uh, in the later stages of the process, what you're trying to sell to them is just showcasing to them the ROI of the platform. Um, very often what we think of as, oh, you know, getting them to do a free trial isn't really a sale, but actually getting someone to be engaged in a free trial movement is still a big sale, right? Like, you know, you offering it to them as saying, hey, I'll create an account for you. Why don't you go play around with it? Versus them asking you that, oh, I would love to try this out. Is that possible? Could you set that up for me? Those are two very, very different conversations. So I feel one is uh, figure out what's kind of the next thing you're selling. If you've tested that they're not ready to you know, make the final commercial purchase just yet, uh, keep pushing 
uh, that to the next stage, right? Like whatever it is that you can show them. In some cases, it is also about constantly showing them value and um, staying engaged so that they're your top of mind for them. And that could be through, um, you know, either inviting them for some like product launch or consultations, things of that nature, or it could be uh, sharing with them, like if you've created a new ROI calculator, uh, or if there's a new report, uh, maybe that's like an analyst report that's not freely available to them. Um, so those are all different things that you could do to continue to engage, continue to give value, um, and um, you know, working towards that eventual sale. That's great. Um, we've unfortunately running out of time, and so we're going to have to wrap up here. But one final question that I'm kind of asking everybody, um, as you know, looking forward, um, we're finishing off 2023. Um, so I'm just really interested in what are your big recommendations um, for 2024 in terms of what that uh, people should start doing, stop doing, and continuing continue doing. That's a tough one. Um, I think um, for people to start doing uh, is to get out of the fear mindset uh, with the current kind of economic uncertainty. Uh, and therefore, uh, get into a state where you believe that your buyers are ready to buy if there is enough value, right? Um, I think we've spent too much time in the last two years uh, being afraid of, uh, you know, is the worst behind us? What What is coming down the barrel? Um, I think what we should uh, stop doing is um, trying to blindly assume that people will ups be upsold to. Uh, people will continue to engage and buy more and more features and products. Um, we have to really test and be thoughtful about what people are using, what do they really want to buy, and not assume that like whatever expansions people saw in 2020, 2021 uh, will come back in 2024. Um, and I think making those assumptions. Um, and I think in terms of continue to do, um, I think it'll be... Uh, you know, people have been doing a good job of uh, going out there and uh, still braving uh, all the negativity. Uh, and I think we'll have to continue to do that. That's great. Thank you so much, Shruti. Um, um, we're going to have to wrap up there. Um, where can people find you if they are looking for you? Awesome. I am on LinkedIn. Uh, you can search for Shruti Kapoor, Wingman or Larry, uh, and uh, hopefully uh, my name will show up. Um, and yeah, I'm pretty active, happy to connect with people and uh, share what I've learned and learn from more sales leaders and uh, strategy people. Awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you to all, all our listeners. And um, that's all the time we have for today. Um, but yeah, um, feel free to tune into the next one. Um, and we'll speak to you soon. Thank you.